720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Windrest Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. I always appreciate, I appreciate you sharing part of your Saturday with me. Lots to do on the program today, but I hope wherever it is you're listening from that you are staying nice and warm and that you, if you are in the car, I hope you get where you're going and you are able to just stay put for a while because as we have been talking about and as we will keep you updated, at, uh, it is not it is not pretty out there and a lot of people are stuck on the roads. So be careful. Stay put if you can. All the good stuff. We're going to keep you updated. So lots to do on the show today. We're joined now by Tim Higgins, who is the technology and automotive reporter at Wall Street Journal, who wrote about how after years of hype and acceleration and going big about it, companies are starting to back off a little bit and take a more cautious approach to driverless car technology. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being with us today, Tim. Thank you. So, so talk us through this, because I feel like over the last couple of years, we've talked many times on this program about how uh, driverless car technology is, has been just kind of, no pun intended, like full speed ahead. And, uh, you know, everybody seems so gung-ho about it. We've talked a little bit about some of the hazards and some of the accidents that have happened. But it's, it does seem like suddenly there is a, a, a cautious feel to it. And suddenly, is it that people are losing interest or they're they're taking this this seriously in a different way or is it something else what what is the pause about well it's a lot harder than uh, people realized uh, years ago um, there was kind of a belief that this uh, was just around the corner and a race really by a lot of companies uh, to get announcements out that they were you know on this path and this was going to occur and part of that uh, is is the kind of the natural element that you see in places like Silicon Valley where uh, new companies trying to raise money um, from investors have to sound very bullish about where the future is going um, but you flash forward a few years to now and after after working hard on this problem, you know, it, it's very difficult. Uh, that said, some of these companies still are very bullish on it. Uh, I think of a company called Aptive, uh, which is an automotive supplier. They've spent a lot of money, and they are they are pushing forward. But when I visited their operations in Las Vegas last week, they showed me what they're doing uh, to put autonomous cars on the test vehicles on the road in Vegas. It's a massive operation. They have 300 people there. Uh, they have two safety operators in the car. They're running 30 the vehicles uh, on the Lyft uh, app uh, 20 hours a day. That's a lot of it investment, a lot of time and expense, and they still haven't gotten to the point yet where they can take the safety operators out of the car. Now, Aptiv is one of the leaders in this field, and they're, they're pushing hard on it, but it really just underscores that this is going to be a kind of a slow, uh, gradual adoption over time, rather than uh, waking up one morning and everybody's running around in robot cars and you don't drive anymore. Right. Uh, so you mentioned the expense. What what kind of expense are they facing when we're when we're thinking about getting driverless cars onto the road or just maintaining what they're doing in this you know relatively small and experimental way? What did you get a sense of what kind of expenses they're they're going through just to to get that far? Well, the expense is, is part of the reason why um, we're seeing um, smaller deployments than just overnight everything changes. It's because the, the sensors for these vehicles are still very expensive. The computers that go in these cars are still very expensive. Uh, test autonomous vehicles can cost um, some estimate uh, $250,000 a vehicle, potentially even more. The sensors are very uh, fragile and have to be readjusted uh, on a regular basis. So it, 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 that's an expense there. Then there's all the time and effort of, of maintaining these vehicles and, and the support staff for that go around them. 
so you know, but it's all it's all part of the development process. And so one of the things that I, I think that that people are kind of surprised, the people, the lay people who were not in deep in the development are surprised that some of these initial projects are really uh, not as glitzy and glamorous as maybe um, science fiction would have had us believe a generation ago. Instead of a car that can drive anywhere and go across the country on its own, well, we're seeing autonomous cars being deployed in, in really confined areas. Uh, maybe they go around the block. Uh, there's a a, a company in Detroit where they've got a, a basically a, a small car that goes around a mile or so around the downtown, taking people from their offices to their parking uh, spots. Uh, so not you know it's not kit from Knight Rider, but it is a you know a, a development step. Well, until it's kit from Knight Rider, count me out. <laughs> I think that's good. <laughs> well, you know I think too perhaps one of the most bullish of all was Elon Musk because you have that star power there, right? A lot of he's very right. visible and he was. So very, very confident about it. This car, we will make cars that will go from New York to Los Angeles by the end of 2017. Nowhere, you know, we're we're nowhere near that. And I think that, you know, he was so visible and his SpaceX projects have been so visible and so much, uh, so many eyes on Tesla that, that it seemed like he and his persona and his celebrity perhaps contributed to to the perhaps, uh, you know, layperson misunderstanding about the timeline here and the reality of it. For sure. And at the time, even uh, those developing self-driving technology as competitors would privately scoff and say that that's not going to be possible. But it's part of the, the Tesla story and his and part of the Elon Musk um, is always shooting for, uh, you know, the stars and really shooting for what he believes is possible. And Maybe he misses those deadlines uh, extraordinarily uh, badly, but he's still pushing for it. Uh, you know, but you're right; it, it, it contributed to some of the hype. Um, you know, and, and now we're kind of in this period of the next few years where some of the hard work goes, and that hard work is getting people used to the idea of self-driving cars. Um, I live here in San Francisco. I see test vehicles on a daily basis, but. As they start to go into new communities, we have we hear reports of, of people being surprised by this. Sometimes they're curious. Sometimes they get frustrated with these vehicles because they don't necessarily operate like a human-driven vehicle. They're often very cautious. Uh, they're programmed when they don't understand something to essentially stop or slow down. That makes human drivers frustrated, and they tend to then maybe illegally pass these vehicles, which then creates even more problems for the robot cars, and then perhaps fender benders and these sorts of things. And all of that just makes it harder for these robot cars to be deployed at any kind of scale because we as a society are still trying to figure out how to deal with these things. Right. And I wish I had another hour with you because I have all these other questions about this, but we'll have to have you back on as more developments happen. But I wonder, uh, you know, I think there's a big piece of this about for city planners and infrastructure because they're, you know, I think even here in Chicago, we've had a lot of conversations about how just rideshare impacted traffic patterns and road quality and how roads had to be maintained at a higher frequency because we suddenly had so many more drivers on the road uh, more often. And I, I can't help but think of the infrastructure piece of this as well. Right. The city leaders that I've talked to around the country are now beginning to talk about how things will be different for them. Do they need to have special curbs for pickup uh, of, of these vehicles? Do they have to have uh, different infrastructure, have stoplights that can talk to these vehicles? Um, it, it's, a, it's a big conversation, and a lot of cities aren't prepared for these kind of conversations because the technology is moving so fast, it's, it's kind of hard to know what you need to know. 
Yeah. Did you get a sense of uh, is there a particular city or a couple of cities that are that seem to be kind of leading the way as far as infrastructure? You mentioned San Francisco and you're seeing driverless cars on the regular. We're not doing that here yet. So I have to assume San Francisco is far ahead of us due to your proximity to Silicon Valley. It's funny. I'm looking out the window and I just saw a General Motors cruise autonomous vehicle uh, across the across the street. Uh, so the, you see them everywhere. Um, one of the, the, the things we've seen is places like Arizona have been very inviting to these programs. So we see Waymo, is, uh, which is the self-driving unit of, of uh, Google Parent Alphabet. They're operating uh, their first commercial service in the suburbs of Phoenix. Um, these are places where the governments have been pretty open to, the, to them coming in, and that tends to appeal to the developers because they can experiment with some things. Las Vegas is interesting. Um, they have some infrastructure in there that they have installed with the companies that are operating there. We see uh, Lyft and Aptiv working there. Boston has been pretty aggressive uh, working with um, some of the companies that are, that are set up there. Uh, you, you know, it, it, some cities are seeing it as an opportunity to be kind of on the, the forefront of this development, hoping that they can be initial deployment cities and see kind of economic growth from that. Yet also there are cities that are concerned about congestion, safety, uh, these sorts of things. Um, here in, in California, for example, the, the city of San Francisco was pretty aggressive in trying to push for more rules because um, concerned about what, what it's going to do for traffic here. That's right. That's right. Well, many more topics to discuss around this this subject, because I think it is a really fascinating one and one we're surely going to be revisiting many times as it continues to roll out to all major cities. So Tim Higgins, technology and automotive reporter at Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for being with us today to discuss this. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a little break back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. I had to play that song. Let it play a minute. It's a good one. It's a pretty song on this very snowy day. Hope you're keeping warm wherever you are right now. All right. Still lots to do on the show today. We have we are joined now by Lauren Zumbach, regular contributor to this program and business reporter at Chicago Tribune, who has written a, quite a bit about Sears. We've been following many, many different paths of the Sears story lately because it's such a such a big local brand. Lauren, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So most recently, we were just talking about Sears uh, as a brand and and how people are so attached to it as a brand name, particularly as it connects to like the Willis Tower that people still call the Sears Tower. We were talking about that just this past week. But uh, today, let's talk about some of the recent stories that you've written about Sears as as just what's happening with it and what's in their future. It seemed like there there was kind of a question mark. It seemed kind of bleak, but there was a possibility that there would be some uh, you know, something to salvage it. Where, what's the latest with Sears? Yeah, it's been a, a busy week for Sears. So this week was the bankruptcy auction um, that was sort of, you know, going to determine, um, you know, after the bankruptcy, who ends up buying the company and, um, you know, whether it would um, end up closing down or stay in business. And um, so it now looks like the company is going to get another shot. Um, it's chairman and uh, a f- former CEO, uh, Edward Lambert, uh, his hedge fund 
ended up putting forward the winning bid for the company uh, was valued at about $5.2 billion. And, uh, you know, his plan is to sort of take that, um, you know, base of stores that are still out there and, you know, try to keep it going. And and then in the midst of all that, we have a federal agency that's now going to take responsibility for the pensions of almost 100,000 employees. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, this is something that you will see in a number of bankruptcies. Uh, it's an agency that sort of guarantees um, pension plans um, uh, so that if the, you know, company that provided them isn't able to do so, um, you know, the, the, the retirees will still be able to get their benefits. Um, you know, they've said that they're going to, um, you know, start planning to take on that responsibility, um, anticipate they'll be able to cover um you know, pretty much all the pension benefits for the 90,000 uh, retirees that Sears plans covered. Um, although some of the retirees have noted that uh, there are still still some open questions about or concerns about whether or not they'll be able to get some of the life insurance benefits. It is interesting when, when we talk about a bankruptcy, when we talk about a, you know, a, a company shifting gears or trying to stay afloat, something like that, how different pieces of it land. Will there be anything from the outside looking in to the to the average consumer? Will the brand look much different in this? You know, we have Lampert, uh, the, the leader of Sears, the CEO saying, you know, there's this real uphill battle ahead. Will that look different to consumers or, or mo- is most of that battle going to be internal? You know, um, a, a lot of that is still going to be determined. Um, you know, Lampert has not said a lot about, you know, the specifics of the strategy going forward. Um, you know, we do know that they're acquiring basically all the remaining assets. Um, you know, they talked in a bit about thinking that the company is really more valuable with all of its, you know, all the pieces still together. Um, so that would suggest that, you know, they you know, from the consumer perspective, a lot of things are going to stay the same. But, you know, that's something that we all definitely have to, you know, wait and see as, as they start talking more about exactly what the future for Sears looks like. Um, you know, um, and we should also say, too, that this isn't a totally done deal. Um, the bankruptcy, the, the sale of the company would still need a bankruptcy judge's approval. Uh, hearing on that is scheduled for early next month. And some of the company's creditors have indicated that they um, would would oppose uh, the proposed sale. Um, so yeah, not a, not a totally done deal, but kind of looks like, at least from what we know so far, the plan would be to to keep it kind of the same. Now, some of the analysts I talked to said that that actually raises some questions, just because. You know, Sears was struggling for several years prior to, you know, when it got to this point. Um, and so, you know, there are some questions about just if they don't make changes or make significant changes, you know, what's going to be the thing that helps them be more successful this time around. Right, right. Lots of things to consider, lots of pieces there. Well, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and share all these stories. You've, you've written so much about about Sears just in the last week, so I'm going to be sure and share all those after the program uh, so people can read them for themselves because there are a lot of really interesting details, particularly what you just mentioned about the about the consultants. And, and there was even a little bit of question about Lampert's future, which I think is an interesting one, too. But we have got to take a break, I'm afraid. And so thank you so much for being with us, Lauren Zimbach. Chicago Tribune business reporter. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Lauren. 
Thanks. You too, Amy. Thanks so much. All right. We're going to take a little break and then get you to news. All that good stuff back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today and sharing part of your very snowy Saturday with us. Gosh, it's uh, it's cleared up. It's not really snowing out there, but there's still a lot of snow on on the ground, and I know a lot of people are still stuck on highways. So we're going to keep you updated at the top and bottom of every hour and in between, if needed, about the latest conditions on the roads and the weather because we got more coming. There's that for sure. Uh, so in stark contrast to that, thinking about this very snowy day uh, that we see when we look out the window, we are joined now by Jane Margulies, who is a contributing editor at Landscape Architecture Magazine and contributor to New York Times. Times, who has a piece in the New York Times right now uh, this week who, and she, because you wrote about new ways that employers are attempting to incorporate outdoor green spaces into their offices. Like I said, very different than what we're seeing outside today. But there's a lot to it. And, and it's really less about aesthetics and just wanting plants around things like that. But it's really about science and data. And there's a whole practice around it about what it means and the and the benefits of having access to outdoor spaces and being around outdoor elements in the workplace. Jane, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So um, so talk us through this, because I think we've seen, you know, some buildings, we, we've talked about lead buildings and green roof spaces and, and the benefits of having plants. But this seems like it's it's kind of doubled down right now. It's in your, in your story that, that for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to share this after the program so you can read it for yourself. It's really quite interesting because it seems like suddenly it's taken a, a much more scientific and, and data driven approach to having green space available in the workplace. That's right, Amy. I mean, um, you know, humans used to uh, work mostly outdoors, right? And we now spend 90% of our time indoors, and there's a growing understanding that we have an innate need for contact with with nature, which we're not getting enough of. And uh, there's a growing body of scientific studies that show that contact with nature can have health and wellness benefits, such as lowering levels of the stress hormone hormone called cortisol. So one way to address that is obviously to bring nature into the workplace with plants and materials like wood and stone. But now developers, architects, building owners are adding terraces and landscape rooftops so that people can actually go outside for a hit of the real thing, all while staying on company premises, of course. And the other thing that's feeding this trend of it, not only the science, um, uh, but, but also, you know, there is a tight job market and employers are all vying for the best and brightest and competition is fierce to provide workplaces that have plenty of bells and whistles as part of the recruitment process. And so you have lounges and ping pong tables and outdoor space has simply become yet the latest perk in this amenities race. And I think there's a there's a, a flip side to that, right? I think so many companies have been uh, adding perks. You know, I think Google was the first really visible one. And, and for a while, people would say they kind of Googleized the office and turned that into a verb, right? Mm-hmm. And and talked about having like ping pong tables and recreation areas and things like that. I, I, I get the sense, though, there is still, there's a cultural component that needs to, to happen in a company because, you know, there's, you can offer amenities, but the culture has to support you using them. So, so sometimes it seems like this is a topic that comes up a lot on this program of sort of 
this push-pull that, that ranges everything from from employee benefits like green spaces and recreation areas all the way to using all the vacation or parental leave that you're allowed if you don't see mm-hmm. the, the culture supporting that. So did you see in, in working on this this piece that's in the New York Times, did you did you get a sense that 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 companies are taking specific tactics to encourage their workers to utilize these spaces and, and really understand the science behind why they matter? Well, it's interesting because L.L. Bean, which is based in Maine, um, did a study that showed, and it was not just a study of their own employees, but work, they hired um, a survey company, and they did a study of, of indoor workers generally and found that something like 86% um, wanted to spend more uh, time outdoors, but some were concerned that employers would think they're goofing off or they're taking a break or they're languishing outside and they're not at their desk. Um, one thing that um, that some companies are doing to make sure that that employees realize that that the outdoors can be a workspace is, you know, they have electrical outlets out there so that um, employees can bring out their laptops, they can have meetings, or um, or uh, pr- providing shade, right, a trellis with, with vines or trees that are leafy so that there's not glare on their screen. So thinking about um, not just having an outdoor space, but how to kind of outfit it so that encourages people not only to go out to enjoy themselves, but also to go out to work. Right. And, and so why, why right now? Why has this suddenly taken a much more data-driven approach? Is it about the competitive workplace? Is it about people being more stressed? Is it about the wellness movement or, or a combination of those things or something else entirely? I think it is the science that's growing and and the fact that people are, you know, have a growing awareness of the science. And I think it is the, um, the, the fact that employers are, um, you know, vying for, for the top talent and they need to show that they're, they're providing the latest sort of workplace. And I also think developers now feel like to do kind of a class A office space, um, you know, the definition of that has changed. And, and a class A office space now, you know, can provide a terrace as well or access to a rooftop that's been landscaped for, for tenants. Yeah. And so for people perhaps listening that are thinking, okay, how do, how do I get from point A to point B? I have none of that. I want some of that, but I don't have, you know, millions to renovate my space. What are, what are kind of the halfway steps and what are some steps towards creating that and creating the culture change to support this? Well, I mean, uh, you know, people can continue to bring the outdoors in. Um, and, you know, that can provide contact with nature, and obviously that can be as easy as bringing in plants or, you know, natural materials or even something as simple as leaf pattern wallpaper, I've been told, can, um, you know, is something that we somehow innately recognize and that and respond to. Um and, um, you know, I think in terms of, you know, an employee can't 
create an outdoor terrace, right? That's got to be the developer or or the owner. The the you know the employer has to work has to move into a place that provides that, but. Um, uh, so employees themselves are limited, but you know I think that there is um, a, a growing awareness of uh, the benefits, and I think that it is beginning to affect developers and architects and designers and everybody else that pro who provide the environment that you know our workplace environments. Well, I really appreciate this topic because I think it's a really interesting one. And, and I know we have talked many times in this program about worker stress levels, worker satisfaction, uh, things like that, and, and just what, what employers have, have tried and, and successfully or not successfully uh, to make workers uh, healthier and support wellness programs. So I think this is a really, really interesting topic. Also, I was usually that person when I had a cubicle. I was that person with like plants everywhere. So I'm totally in favor of this. <laughs> without even knowing that that's there right. was science behind it. That's right. I just said, I like to I like to be with my plants, so I'm going to bring them to work. <laughs> that's right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Jane, sure. Jane Margulies. And again, for those of you who, who follow me on social media, I'm going to be sure and share this story after the program, because it is really interesting and d dives into the science a bit more, and I want you to be able to read it for yourself. So thanks for being with us today, Jane. Thanks, Amy. All right. We're going to take a little break, and we come back. More of this fun here on 720 WGN. WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Wrapping things up here in just a little bit and turning things over to our friend Scott Katoon on the Startup Showcase. See what he's got going on. Always a fun, interesting show. I always learn a lot from that guy about what in the heck companies people are starting and things they're doing. Uh, but you know, we I know we're going to go to news here in about uh, about 10 minutes or so, but I want to check in. I know some people were calling in earlier talking about being stuck out on the roads, particularly on that uh, I-65 corridor. So I thought we would uh, chat with the newsroom, our friend Bob Kessler, and see what's happening. What is the latest? Do we get the sense that things are moving a little bit better yeah, on the roads now, Bob? They are in Chicago. We're not really seeing any big delays. I mean, the plows really kind of did their thing. Residential streets, obviously. I mean, oh, we mm -hmm. live in the near north and northwest sides, and that's a little different. But oh, I would say my neighborhood, nothing. Nothing? Nothing. I mean, I couldn't help. A little cynical piece of me was like, you know, if Rom was running again, my streets would be plowed. Ah, yeah. He doesn't care. Rom's leaving me stranded in knee-high snow. No, it was like mid-calf snow, but still, it was inconvenient. But the thing I was looking at <laughs> is there's a, there's so many dogs in my neighborhood, and people are out walking their dogs this morning, and like the dogs were disappearing in the snow. <laughs> They're so little. Right, chest height. <laughs> I would just see like ears and a tail. <laughs> so, uh, but we have more snow on the way, correct? We do, but it's not, it doesn't seem like it's going to be significant, really. A um, few inches, maybe. Okay. You know, but it's nothing that's going to, I mean, now, New England, 18 inches for uh, parts of New, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, a little different. Yeah. You know, 18 yeah. inches out. I, I have a couple of friends in New Hampshire, and I was texting with one earlier, and it was like, uh, how, how'd it go in Chicago? Because it's, it's coming our way. It's starting yeah. here. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm going to work, so <laughs> nothing shut down. Yeah, they seem to be, I mean, these last few winters, they seem to really get nailed. And we haven't had that kind of, you know, it used to be when I, if you would mention the blizzard of 1967, and now I'm doing it on the radio here, people would just flood with calls of Absolutely. story. I remember when, you know, Absolutely. that's no. when my children were conceived or whatever. 
Oh, we haven't had one of those so storms many call- yeah. There are so many people that are blizzard babies. There are yeah. so many people. I've had so many callers say, well, I was born about nine months after the 67 blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's nothing else to do. I was born in October. Yeah. <laughs> and so, But it used to be, and it probably still is, people love to call and share their blizzard of 67 stories. But he, we haven't had a blizzard he, of 67. Here is the lesson. Well, we had that one, the, the Groundhog Day blizzard. Yeah, that that's, was a that's, oh, pretty yeah. fascinating one. I wonder if there was an uptick in children born. Was that a February one? Yeah. So be like- I would be, well, I, I might, I might guess no, only because there was such hype around, um, the, the, uh, the thunder snow. Remember that happened and that had yes. not happened in years here. So the thunder snow skilling was so darn excited about that thunder snow. And we had people, it was like, it was trending on social media for people to go outside and throw boiling water into the air. And like get a video of it, and so everybody's. So I think people were like busy doing dumb stuff on online, not you know listening to baby making music. <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to throw boiling water in the air. Not the I mean, bedroom can wait. M- I was saying maybe there's boiling water to throw. R- rethink your priorities at that point. But hey, who am I to judge? Whatever you do, you folks, you do you. Um, uh, but also, what was I going to say about snow? I had another thing I was going to say about snow and plowing. Well, whatever. I think it's an interesting. It's a. It's an interesting time with social media because, like, anytime there's weather, people freak out and put, but like, put all these videos of like the videos of discontent. But I like the time lapse videos of where people. I, I saw a couple of those on Instagram this those morning, cool. where people were like, "Okay, this is." You know, this is 11 p.m. and it kind of went through the night. And you could see their patio furniture just kind of get buried, which is always interesting. Yeah, it is great. Well, I took I was coming home last night at midnight and I had my camera. I always have almost always have a camera with me in addition to my phone. And I got this group of people walking down the street getting nailed. You know, it's on my Instagram. What's happening behind you? Where are you? Oh, that's um, that's the squawk box. That's uh, ABC News telling us the president will be talking in an hour. Yes, he's, yeah. he's talking about it. turned up loud, the squawk so, box. So he mm-hmm. was talking about, uh, let's let's actually talk about that. I was going to ask you about that, too. So at 2 o'clock, Trump uh, has an, has said he's going to make an announcement that's the thing, about yeah. the wall. Is there, is there, do we have a sense of what that's going to yeah, be? Yeah, the Associated Press is saying that sources they've been speaking with, uh, he will announce he's open to trading protections for young immigrants in exchange for money for the wall. I see, I see. That is... Uh, people who spoke anonymously to the Associated Press. So we'll see if they're right Okay, well. in about an hour-ish. Okay, well. So so the choices today then are to stay inside and deal and, and ignore the snow, listen to Trump, <laughs> right? As we were talking about earlier, like the, the anytime, you know, the weather, the weather babies. Throw boiling water in the air if you <laughs> feel so moved, although it's not that cold. I mean, if your choices are listen to Trump, throw boiling water in the air, or, you know, potentially conceive, I'm going to say. Do those in the reverse order. I don't know. This is taking a weird turn. We're just going to talk about weather. Now we're like trying to get all of Chicago pregnant is what we're doing. (laughs) My goodness. All right. Well, uh, we will. We're going to check in with Scott Katoon here in a second. And we're going to get to news. And I'm sure we'll have a full weather report and traffic and all that good stuff from you then at that point. Thanks for chatting, Bob Kessler. All right. We're going to take a little break. And we come back. We're going to check in with Scott Katoon and see what he's got coming up on the Startup Showcase. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN. That does it for me. Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. It's time to check in.